what goes into the selection of a doctor. Maybe you look up reviews on how they treat patients, patient reviews, you look into convenience of location, you think about their bedside manner, maybe. You think about their office staff, maybe uh, the wait times. But if you're healthy, uh, you, can, you can give weight to all of these matters. However, if you have a real problem, you start to weigh certain things way higher than others. Uh, you're likely to um, look mostly at success rates. Convenience, generally at this point, is set aside. Wait times, less important. Office staff, maybe they're rude, but you can tolerate them. The doctor may be abrupt, but if he's informative and confident, and um, really the biggest question is, how has he done at treating my particular illness? That's where it really makes a difference to you. Gospel ministry involves people, and people come in all shapes and sizes. People have many different types of personality, social proficiencies, and intellectual abilities. Ministry is not, ministry is not about the best programs, the best facilities, the most streamlined setup. It's not about the best dressed or the least restrictive. Gospel ministry comes down to one main point of evaluation. Is the gospel central to all that a ministry participates in? Is the gospel central at the heart of everything that a ministry participates in? In this section of the book of Galatians, Paul will remind the Galatians... That it was the gospel that had brought them in. That it was the gospel they gladly received. It was the gospel that impacted them. It was the gospel now that is producing a conflict between them. And interestingly enough, and really not to our surprise, he proposes a solution. You know what it is? What is it? The gospel. So the gospel brings them together. The gospel is at the heart of their challenge, but the gospel is at the heart of their solution. So, with that being said, look please with me at Galatians 4, beginning in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much 
of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. What a great section. There there is so much in this section that we actually are not going to cover it all this morning. What we'll see between today and next Sunday is there are seven elements of gospel ministry. This morning we will cover four of them. Next week, another three excellent traits, excellent elements of gospel ministry. The gospel ministry is not about programs. It's not about clothing. The message I give to you this morning, the message that we partake of this morning... I could just as easily utter this message in jeans and a t-shirt and it would not change the message. It would not change the message one bit. There are churches that do that. I'm not saying that I want to wear jeans and a t-shirt in a pulpit. I I really don't care. I have no concern. I could wear a collared shirt with no tie. I could wear a shirt and tie. I could wear jeans and a t-shirt. I could wear a button-down. I really don't care. The clothing doesn't matter. The clothing is not the ministry. People... If I'm here preaching to myself, how's that going to go? Well, I'll probably really enjoy it. I love preaching. (laughs) But I don't know how fruitful it would be. And what we preach about, the message we bring. As we look at this text, it's going to bring that message and it's going to eliminate some of the fat. We make big deals about things that the Bible doesn't. The gospel is our big deal. So, four elements this morning, three next week. The first of these elements of gospel ministry is this. Gospel ministry encourages a refocus of our attention. Gospel ministry encourages a refocus of our attention. Taking your gaze, your eyes from there to here. And why do I say that? Look at verse 12. Brothers... I entreat you, I beg you, I'm I'm really appealing to you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Essentially, we just cut right down to the heart of what he's communicating. He's telling the Galatians and us to follow him in escaping the bondage to works-based religion. He's telling them to follow Him in the same pathway He has taken to rid Himself and they should rid themselves of this understanding that our performance in a works-based religion is what brings us into and sustains a relationship with God. He says, be like I am. I've been where you are. I know all about it. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3 for just a second. Philippians chapter 3. Paul, in this testimony of his salvation and God's work in his life, is communicating this very concept of how God took him from one place in his spiritual journey to a relationship with Jesus Christ that far surpasses anything he experienced before. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and have 
no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's a little... I don't think that we want to be talking like that, you. It's a little proud sounding, but there's a reason for his communication. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So you want to compare credentials, I've got it. I'm okay spiritually from from all of these places. But then he came to know something else. And it made all of those items that he once took great pride in, he, he really repented and he relented and he despised himself. Like Much like Job, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count all of these things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, what he's saying is, I I at one point had all of these spiritual credentials in a community, and I was well regarded. But I came to realize that none of this mattered with regard to my relationship with God. It all actually was prohibitive from bringing me into a relationship with God. And when he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, he realized that that is what His glory should be in, which is how this passage started in verse 3. We worship God through the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in our flesh. This is what is at the heart of what Paul says back in Galatians 4.12. He says, become like I am. You, you came to faith in Christ and now you've, you've entered back into bondage. You've placed yourself back under a bondage that you've been freed from Become as I am, freed from bondage, because I've been where you are. And he moves on from this point. He says, you did me no wrong. You did me no wrong. Before we get to that, I want to just capsulize that concept for a second. Gospel ministry, always, gospel ministry, always, casts our gaze back to the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. Other types of ministry bring our attention back to ourselves more than it does to Christ. And you and I, folks, whether we're having one-on-one ministry or pulpit ministry, whatever the case may be, or if you're listening to ministry, always listen. Is this topic more about me or is this topic more about Christ? If the topic is more about me, Who are we making much of? Us. If the topic is Christ, who are we making much of? Christ. Isn't that what worship is? You see, time in the Word is not just lecture time. This is worship. This is worship. To talk about us, then, is to worship us. 
to talk about Him is to worship Him. He concludes verse 12 by saying, you did me no wrong. It's a little confusing. What, what are you saying here, Paul? Why, why just throw this you did me no wrong thing right in the middle here? You could read this like this. I'm not saying these things to you because I'm mad at you. I'm not confronting you and taking this tone with you as an indictment of all that you are, but I'm trying to point you to the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus alone. And it also starts to introduce verses 13 and 14. Look at what it says in verses 13 and 14. You did me no wrong at the end of verse 12. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? So he starts to introduce this next section. So don't be thrown off by the you did me no wrong. He's he's trying to temper everything down. He's just told them that they were trying to enter back into slavery. And now he says, here's why I'm talking to you like this. You've you've fallen in a direction that is not profitable to you. You're, You're really regressing. So the first element of gospel ministry that we want to pull out of this is gospel ministry encourages a refocus of our attention away from us onto Christ. Secondly, gospel ministry sometimes takes place through hardships we face. Gospel ministry sometimes takes place through hardships we face. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. I tried really hard to not make it say because of. The word in the Greek, dia, because of, can also mean through. So I I, I really want to read, you know it was through a bodily ailment or while I was enduring a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. But it's really to violate some rules of Greek grammar that that you don't really want to know about. It really needs to read because of. It needs to read because of. That is the proper translation of this. So what he's telling them is, because of this bodily ailment, I came to bring the gospel to you. In other words, if the bodily ailment were not there, my plans were not to come to you. I would not have been there. So we start to understand a little bit of the sovereignty of God from a text like this. So often, when things don't go our way, we start to lament the trouble. It's natural. Everyone laments trouble. No one wants to have physical hardships, financial hardships. No one wants to have relational hardships. No one likes any of this. Everyone wants to get away from it. So so the point is not, hey, you should really love problems. The point is, we recognize that problems have a source. Sometimes we have created our own problems. Always God is involved. Did you hear that? Sometimes we create our own problems. Always God is involved. So even if we make our own problems, God is still superintending over this. Paul had other plans, but sickness interrupted those plans. When We go through things that are outside of our control and outside of our desires. Sometimes we shut our ministry mindset off. You you had all kinds of plans this year or last year, and something went wrong. If in the process of those troubles you say, oh, this didn't work out, and you forget that you're involved in gospel ministry as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to miss all kinds of opportunities that God had 
designed with that difficulty. Paul is letting us know that in the midst of our difficulties, we are to look for God's providential hand. Sometimes, in fact, all the times, these circumstances are what God intended to provide the ministry He planned for us. We know texts of Scripture like this, Romans 8.28. We're all familiar with it. We embrace it when it's convenient. We need to know it and believe it and embrace it all the time. God's Word says, and we know that for those who know God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In Proverbs 16 and verse 9, the Bible says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Sometimes the things we hate in our lives turn out to be our greatest gospel opportunities. Let's look at two illustrations of this in the Scriptures, please. First of all, Philippians chapter 1. Now you know that Philippians is one of the prison epistles. So Paul is bound in prison. He's under house arrest at this time. as his first imprisonment. And he's writing to the Philippians, faithful flock of people. He's writing a thank you letter to them for their support and a way to encourage them to be of one mind and to experience the joy that is ours in Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12-14, through 14, he speaks to them of his rejoicing in what God is doing directly related to his imprisonment. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Can you see what he's, he's recognizing that the trouble he's experiencing? He's in jail. This is not his plan. He's a missionary. Missionaries don't stay in one place. They, they go and they, they, they communicate the gospel. And when it's established, they move maybe a little to the next village. Or maybe they go to another entire place Altogether, the, the goal of a missionary is to keep spreading the word. And here this missionary, the, the, the greatest missionary we know, is bound up in prison. Can't go anywhere. And in the face of that trial, what did he do? He brought the gospel where the gospel would not have been. And other people picked up the mantle. And they brought the gospel elsewhere. See, this is the great thing about knowing the sovereignty of God. Everything that happens in our lives, whether we like the items or not, are for our good. God has a design on it, and we can trust Him. And in the process, look for opportunities for gospel ministry. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Also a prison epistle. Wrote this same imprisonment. And he writes to them about his burden and the, and the entrustment that God has given to him in ministry. And he tries to encourage them in the face of his imprisonment to trust God and to persevere. He says, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, that's an entrustment, of God's grace that was given to me, how uh, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote, have written briefly. When you read this, you may persevere or excuse me, perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
he tells them what it is. Verse 6, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister. So he's telling them, God has entrusted this to me, and I've got to bring this gospel message to both Jews and Gentiles because there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. They both need Christ. So God has entrusted this to me even as a prisoner. And he goes on and he tells them in verse 10, the the result of all of this is that the church might demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, that others would see it in the world and even angelic beings. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he revealed or excuse me, that, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the, what God is doing is God's eternal purpose. And the context even is that Paul is a prisoner proclaiming the stewardship, which is the gospel, is also part of God's eternal purposes. Your trouble, physical, financial, relational, is designed by God. You're welcome. Don't miss what God is doing incorporating your pain into His eternal purpose. And so Paul caps this portion in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Listen, folks. Difficulties are by design. We all would prefer a non-hardship kind of life. But when hardship comes, keep your eyes open for God's work. This is what Paul did. Head back to Galatians. Gospel ministry encourages a refocus of our attention. Gospel ministry sometimes takes place through hardships we face. Number three, gospel ministry is not based upon our resources. Verse 14 And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Think about physical appearance. Saul was the people's choice. How did that work out? Think about intellectual prowess. Paul said, when I come, when I write, I don't write with the wisdom of men. Think about charisma. Paul said, when I come, I don't come with smoothness of speech. You'll remember in 2 Corinthians, he even writes, when they people, they think that my speech is contemptible. Your letters are weighty and your speech is contemptible. They were, they were kind of looking down. I mean, Paul says, I'm just bringing you the gospel. I am bringing you the revelation of God. I, I don't have to make it into this really smooth talk for you. Charisma is not the thing. Paul's physical appearance and limitations, it says in verse 14, were a trial, a trial to the Galatians. That's very interesting. Like, I am not a a pretty person. But I don't think that, like, as you look at me, you think, oh my word, I have to look at him again. Like, I don't think I'm that bad. (laughs) Paul on the other hand, enters into Galatia and the people are like, oh! Now, why am I being so so driving this point home? Listen to the words that he uses in this text. You did not scorn me. The word there means to utterly 
disdain. And it gets worse. He says, or despise me. The word is the Greek term, ready? Listen to this, ready? Ektuo. That's the word. It's an onomatopoetic term. An onomatopoeia. I love it. I learned that in college. I've wanted to use it like many times in my life. Onomatopoeia. I'm just going to keep on saying it. An onomatopoeia is like buzz. Like the bee, you know, bee. Or zip. It's a word that sounds like it means. Well, what do you think ektuo is? <laughs> Paul was so disgusting to look at that you could actually taste it in your mouth. Whose personal appearance is so bad that you just can't even tolerate it? You're going to spit. Now, there is some, some rationale that people have come up. Well, they used to spit when they saw someone that they thought was demonically possessed. And so if they would spit, the demon would go away, stuff like that. Maybe that's related. I really don't know. We do know there's something wrong with his physical appearance. Bottom line, gospel ministry is not about whether you have hair or not whether you have a goatee or not, whether you're gray or black-haired or you have long flowing hair or you wear a three-piece suit. None of this makes any difference. It is not, ministry is not about the person's appearance. It's about the power of God. That's all that matters. It's about Christ and Him crucified. It's about the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's about a God who, holy as He is, and righteous as He is, and just as He is, has made a provision to save a wretch like me. The Gospel ministry is not based upon the messenger's looks, intellect, or rhetorical skill. It is based upon the power of God. The Gospel is not about the messenger, but about the Savior. And any ministry that is built on a man that's not named Jesus, run, run. It's not the ministry for you. It's about Christ and Christ only. These gospel elements, it's, it's the gospel leads us to a change of our attention. The gospel is, is really sometimes facilitated through difficulty. And the gospel is not dependent on my resources. It's dependent upon God's word himself. Fourthly, and lastly for this morning, gospel ministry brings a spirit of joy and charity. Gospel ministry brings a spirit of joy and charity. Listen to what Paul says in verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? Now the term blessedness Its related term is used nine times in one short section. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, nine times it's used, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And the term has this idea of contentment, this term of satisfaction. It's a term of joy. Why does the gospel bring satisfaction and joy? I'll let you, for a moment, just ponder it yourself, and then I'll lead you through your thinking. Or mine. Why does the gospel bring joy? We know who we are. I can hide it. 
can hide it from my wife or my kids. I can hide it from you. I can hide it from people. I know who I am. I know when my attitude is wrong. I know when I've lost joy. I know when I'm discouraged. I know when I'm depressed. I know when I'm angry. I know when I'm irritable. I know when I'm impatient. I know when, when, when something grabs my attention and I become covetous. I know me. And you know you. We know what we've done. And we realize, according to the Scripture, what the consequences of our sinful actions and condition brings. It brings condemnation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We also know that we have encountered a gracious God who knowing every sin of my inner man, every wickedness of my soul, every thought and intention of my heart. He knows every one. And He, knowing all of that, sent His Son, Jesus, who gave up the glory of heaven, became a human, took on the form of a servant, lived obediently, perfectly, in accordance with the truth and in obedience to the Father. Listen, ready? And He became sin for me. All of those impurities of thought, all of those angry moments, all of those wrong speeches, all of those acts of wickedness, every single one placed on Jesus as if he had performed the act himself. A gracious God, knowing all of my sinfulness, sent his son to become sin for me so that I, through him, could be the righteous one like him. So all of the the obedience and truthfulness of Jesus' life, the purity of Jesus' life, every obedience and every act attributed to my account as if I had done it. Well, I didn't do it. He did it on my behalf. He not only became a sin offering for me, His righteousness becomes my righteousness because of a sacrifice on a cross where he was rejected indeed by men and condemned and judged by God, he rightly, the just for the unjust, received the recompense for sin because God doesn't do anything unrighteous. So Jesus hangs on a cross bearing sin he didn't commit. God in his righteousness and justice placed my sin on Him as a sacrifice, condemned that sin and that one charged with it. His wrath was poured out on Jesus, His perfect, spotless Son. Why? So I might be righteous. So I might become a son of God so I might have eternal righteousness, so I might live with God forever. Why does the gospel bring joy? What do you mean? When you think about the gospel, it lifts your soul. 
Why then does Paul have to say, what has become of your blessedness? What does it tell you? What does it tell you when someone should ask you, what then has become of your blessedness? It tells you that your, your attention has regressed from Christ and the Gospel to some probably well-meaning thing. You've turned your gaze, whether it's good or bad, and when we do that, when we turn our gaze away from the Gospel, we lose this joy that God has given us. Where, where does joy come from? Well, we can conjure it up as we think about something like this. I think it's, it's pretty natural for someone who's a believer thinking about the Gospel to have their soul lifted. But... If you get more technical beyond a, a really great um, thinking through joy, where does joy come from? Well, Galatians 5 tells us it's a fruit of the Spirit. If someone has lost someone such as, you know, lost their blessedness, it means they are not walking in the light and in the power of the Spirit. Listen, everyone... Not everyone. Most people run into discouragement from time to time. I do. Here's what we can't do. We can't accept it. You can trace it back and say, okay, well, here's the reasons why, and understand humanly why. But we can't say, okay, it's fine that I'm discouraged because X, Y, and Z. Because it's not in line with the fruit of the Spirit. We are not expecting out of our lives natural elements. Natural elements, everybody does it. Our expectation is supernatural. So in the face of items that should make us discouraged, we say, Lord, I'm being discouraged by X, Y, and Z. I know that shows me. I know that shows me. I am not allowing your Spirit to empower me. Because the result of the Spirit is joy. We can't accept it. But he doesn't only talk about joy in verse 15. He also talks about charity. This is pretty interesting. In the middle of verse 15, he says, For I testify that you, or to you, that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Maybe they were so disgusted by his looks, they'd say, look here, have my eye instead of yours. I can't tolerate looking at that anymore. I don't think that's the idea, though. I think their love for him, because of what he had done by bringing the gospel, they didn't care about his despicable appearance. They didn't care about his really not smooth speech. He brought the life-changing, life-giving word of the gospel to them. And they said, listen, if you need anything, I'll give you my eye. If I could give you my hand, if I could give you my feet, if I, whatever you need, I, I'm, I'm here for you. So I, I'm not sure that it's actually talking about you know, well, Paul, Paul's eye ailment. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It doesn't, the text doesn't warrant having to take it that way. It's not against it. What's the point? Charity. I used charity instead of love. It's the same concept biblically. But charity carries with it the active element of love. Let's, let's look at a couple of passages and we'll be, we'll be through. We're, we're, we're not coming back to Galatians, so you have to hold your hand here. Head over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Both James and John speak of this type of Christianity. A life that is marked, or a life that is marked by the gospel, is one that seeks to demonstrate the generosity of God. It is not 
out of compulsion or guilt, charity, love, is an outflow of God's work in our lives. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's speaking about this need and, and a group of people from Macedonia. These Christians that were having difficulty of their own. And the Christian charity that arose because of God's working in them through grace. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty through things you don't usually see go hand in hand, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, ah, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you hear how he's, how he's writing this? Like that? Who, who begs you? Who begs you to let them help you? Usually it's the other way around. Hey, can you spare a dime? <laughs> Not, no. No, but let me help you. I want to help you. I want to I meet this need. Let me help you. This is an obvious work of God. It's charity that flows out of the generosity of God Himself. Verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. That's a, a working of God. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So he's calling them. He's calling them to allow God's act of grace to work, to give them a charitable spirit, a, a loving spirit that, that reflects God's generosity. Now, how generous, how generous is God, in fact? Doesn't the Bible tell us he gave us the best gift? And, and he who has freely given us this best gift, how will he not also give us all things? So the generosity of God is, is, is beyond the marks. And what God wants and what God will do in the life of the person that is given to the gospel is he will produce this spirit of charity within us. This is a mark of the gospel. Take a look now at one more passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A mark of the gospel is this Christian love, this charity that doesn't just speak Speak, speak, speak about love. Speak, speak, speak about love. But love is seen. Love is seen. Now, why is that important? Well, John 13, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay? 1 John chapter 4, he tells us, God has not been seen. No one can see God. And then later on, he talks about God being seen in his body through a demonstration of love. You know, the world doesn't believe in God. Did you know that? And God tells us how he can be seen through our charitable spirit to one another 
that flows out to the world, God can be seen. And all of these that reject the reality of God, all of these who, in spite, despite all the things that God has done, revealing Himself through creation, revealing Himself in the Word, revealing Himself in the Gospel, God is telling us that as He works in us and through us to demonstrate His love, this charitable spirit, people will see who He is. In 1 Corinthians 13, now you know the context, or maybe you don't, 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with some difficulties in the church. They're really wise. They're really smart. They know a lot. There's contention. There is immorality. And there's an acceptance of immorality among the church. There's a, a, a real trial concerning how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then he starts to deal with them about the spiritual gifts. Because people started to get really puffed up with their knowledge and their proclamation in the way that they use the really spiritual spiritual gifts you know the the weenie you helping kind of spiritual gift or the the really mercy kind of spiritual gift or the administration kind of spiritual gift you know who cares about all those things i can speak in tongues i can speak a word of knowledge there's some real problems in the church of corinth over this issue he deals with spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and chapter 14 right in between right in between dealing with one of the hardest issues that they were struggling with. Here Paul communicates under the inspiration of the Spirit what they needed in their spiritual ministry. And it was this heart of charity that we're speaking about. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I, if I have the best speech that a man can bring forth, or even the eloquence that would be associated with an angel. Now, what does an angel's speech sound like? Hang on, I want to hear. I'm listening. Do you know what it sounds like? All right. When an angel communicated with the people of God, what did they hear? Their own language. <laughs> just, just so you know. There's no confusion here. When an angel speaks... It's clear and understood. Paul was saying, if I could speak exactly what you need to hear when you need to hear it in a way you can understand it, but have not love, I just wasted my breath. Oh, that's not what he says, but that's what he gets across. I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Ah, he goes on. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, big deal. I'm nothing. Verse 3. If I give away all I have and and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. It's not about the gift. It's not about the act of charity. It's about the heart of charity that comes through God Himself. This is what love is. God is love. Which is why when God's people are controlled by the Spirit and love one another, God is actually seen. The unseeable is seen by the acts of charity that are empowered by the Spirit. Verse 3 now, verse 4, excuse me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable 
or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Could be love never stops. Love never fails. Love continues. Charity. Back in Galatians, you're not going to turn there. What has happened to this blessedness? I brought you the gospel and your hearts were lifted and you saw Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and you tasted and you were filled and you were satisfied and someone has come along and they have diverted your attention from Christ and now you're, you're no longer joyous, you're no longer filled, you're no longer satisfied. You have, you have sought after a broken cistern that can hold no water. You're wasting your life. I'm not telling you this because I'm mad at you. You have done me no wrong. I remember what you were like. I came to you and preached the gospel because God sent me there for the bodily ailment. You didn't despise me or scorn me. You accepted me as a messenger from God, even as if I were Jesus Christ himself. What happened? What happened? Your joy is gone because you don't look at Christ. He's not enough for you. You think there's a better way. I know what you were like. And I know what God did in your life. God gave you a Christian charity that you would have maimed yourself. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is not impotent. The gospel is not stale. The gospel is not sterile. The gospel is not useless. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Glory to God. Because I am not a Jew, but I know Christ. I've become a son because of the gospel. And the gospel changes everything. Gospel ministry points our attention to the work of Jesus Christ. It is flexible to be used when things turn south. It is not based upon appearance or wisdom of speech. It produces joy and charity. These are the fruitful expectations of true ministry. Ministry is not about programs. Ministry is about people's lives being changed by God's goodness. So how about you? Has God placed his mark upon you? Has he rescued you from a sterile, impotent, useless religion and given you joy that comes from him and charity that marks people's lives and a, and a charity that demonstrates who he is. Listen, I can't answer it for you. We all have to answer it for ourselves. But this is the gospel. And folks, this is why every week I open the Bible and you hear gospel. Because it's the only thing that should mark a ministry from beginning to end inside and out. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to, to see your hand, your power, your love, your kindness. Help us to share it with others. Do in our lives what we cannot do ourselves. Bring about a, a joy and a charity, a giving and a love that demonstrates your power, your goodness, and your truthfulness. I pray for anyone here this morning, maybe they have not 
come to know this joy that so many of us have experienced. We ask that you would do your work in their lives and that they would surrender their heart to you and desire, desire Jesus. Give them a, a craving that cannot be quenched without Jesus and help them to realize that Jesus will, in fact, satisfy that craving. Do this by your goodness in accordance with your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.